0: All right, last week we started a series called Across the Spectrum, and uh, basically this series we are taking uh, some of the most controversial topics, some of the uh, questions that sometimes lie hidden with, uh, within us as we maybe read our Bibles, or as we walk through faith, or as we uh, meet people from different faiths or different backgrounds. Uh, sometimes we have these questions that sometimes we're actually afraid to ask. And uh, sometimes we, we call these questions, you know, quick page turners. You know, you're reading through your Bible and you come across a verse maybe and you quickly get onto the next page because uh, it's maybe troubling. Um, but we should never be afraid to ask hard questions. I mean, if we j- believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, uh, then we should put, shouldn't be afraid to ask the hardest questions. We shouldn't be afraid to ask each other, you know, how do you see this or how are you wrestling with this? Because some of these big questions need to be wrestled out. Uh, through community and various things. And so, we have a list of uh, difficult topics we've been going through, and uh, today we are on the topic of Old Testament uh, violence. And uh, these series are uh, more focused around the mind, Um, so uh, a little more technical, a little more theological. These cause us to think more than the typical message we do here, where maybe we focus sometimes on, on the heart and those kinds of things. This is for for mind types of people who uh, may be wrestling with these things. And Jesus told us that we are to love him with all, uh, not only our heart and our soul, but but our mind as well. And we talked about this last week, uh, but we'll just keep mentioning it, uh, that these deal with difficult theological topics. And it's always helpful when we battle this kind of thing to understand how to talk about theology. And at the center of theology is God. That's actually what theology means. It's the study of God, theology. Uh, God is at the center of our faith Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And it is in God we find our identity, it is God we find our security, uh, our worth and value is found in God. And therefore, if someone comes along with a different opinion or a different doctrine, uh, we don't have to feel threatened. Uh, We don't have to get angry. We don't have to get upset. We can actually sit down and have mature theological conversations. And the things we are talking about today lie in the realm of opinion and doctrine. A dogma, again, is those things that that all Christians agree on, the essentials of the faith. Uh, The things found like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, those things that have been handed down. Uh, Then we have doctrine, those things that would uh, separate different groups of Christians or denominations. And then we have opinion, which those things which are not very clear in the Bible, but different Christians have different opinions on. Uh, and so uh, we always have to go back. Our identity is found in God, and so it, it frees us up to have these difficult kind of conversations without getting upset or threatened or whatever it might be. Because in the end, unity is incredibly important uh, for followers of Jesus. Uh, again, we looked at this as a bit of review, uh, but unity is really important. In John 17... Uh, Jesus said, I have given them, that's us, followers of Jesus, the glory you gave me. In other words, God the Father, the same glory he gave to Jesus, he gave to us as his children. That's a pretty incredible thing when you think about it. (laughs) The same glory Jesus was given by the Father, he gives to us. Now why would he give us that kind of glory? It tells us, so that they may be one as we are one. That just as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are amazingly one, Jesus is saying that God has given us glory as followers of Jesus so that we might be one. Uh, I and them and you and me, that they may experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. In other words, the testimony to the world about the truth of Jesus and his love is actually to be seen in our unity. And if you've been around the church for any period of time, you know that the church has done a really horrible job at that. You <laughs> know, sometimes we like to fight more than get along. And, and, and a lot of this has to do with misplaced identity. That often we will place our identity in, in our doctrine or our identity in, in, in having to feel right rather than in Jesus. And so it's important that we talk about these things, partly because it helps us learn that there actually are Christians who might have a different view than us. And it gives us kind of a springboard to have mature discussions around these issues. Uh, So the topic today is the violence in the Old Testament. And if you have talked to people uh, outside of the faith, or maybe yourself, maybe even wrestle with this, you realize this is not a simple thing. Sometimes you, you know, a new Christian might pick up their Bible and they begin to read and, and they're like, what? What did God just do? (laughs) Or what did he just say? Uh, If if you've had people challenge your faith, you might have, I mean, Atheist Richard Dawkins, who would say the God of the Old Testament is a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. Uh, Even Christians have written books like The Disturbing Divine Behavior. Uh, That, again, if if you're reading through the Bible, you'll run into passages, uh, quite often in the Old Testament, that just cause you to go, what in the world? Is God doing there? Uh, And so that's the kind of thing we're going to talk about today. And just some of the verses that uh, may cause us to think that there's an an issue around this. Uh, For instance, Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and drives out before you many nations, and lists, lists all these ites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Or Deuteronomy 20. When the Lord your God hands the towns over to you, use your swords to kill every man in the town. But you may keep for yourselves all the women, children, livestock, and other plunder. You may enjoy the plunder from your enemies that the Lord your God has given you. Or we're going to look at 1 Samuel 15. Uh, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. And, And in front of the issue begins to grow is... Uh, can you see Jesus saying these things? Can you see Jesus saying, uh, you know, Junction Church, I want you to go destroy whatever that, and I want you to put to death every man, woman, children, and infant, and even the animals. Uh, because if, if we believe uh, Jesus is God, then this, this seemingly God is saying this thing. So again, this, this brings up these issues, of troubling issues. Or Jeremiah. And this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Again, again, could you picture Jesus saying this? And yet it says in Jeremiah that the Lord is saying this. I will smash them one against the other, parents and children alike, declares the Lord. I will allow no pity or mercy or compassion to keep me from destroying them. And we can go on and on, but uh, there's a number of verses in the Old Testament like this. And so all of a sudden you can see why this becomes an issue. And why... Uh, non-Christians use this maybe against us or maybe why some of us in the dark of our hearts are asking like what in the world is going on with this? This becomes even more difficult when you begin to look into the eyes of Jesus. Uh, In John chapter 14, uh, Philip, one of the disciples, says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. In other words, we want to know God. We want to see God. And Jesus answered, don't you know me Philip even after I have been among you such a long time anyone who has seen me has seen the Father and in verse 7 Jesus says if you really know me you will know my Father as well from now on you do know him and have seen him in other words Jesus saying to look at me is to know the Father to to know me is to know is to know God and yet we look at the life of Jesus and it seems to be completely different <laughs> than some of the things God is doing in the Old Testament. And this is why sometimes you hear, like, why does the God of the Old Testament seem so mean and angry and, and the God of the New Testament seems so nice? Uh, but the Bible teaches there's only there's one God, not, not two or three. Or Colossians 2.9, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That uh, One of these things that all Christians believe on is that, that Jesus is fully God. That he's not just the nice side of God, he's not just an aspect of God, that he is fully God. So again, we look at Jesus and some of these passages in the Old Testament, and it can can be very confusing. Especially when we look at some of the teachings of Jesus. For instance, in Luke 6, you compare a teaching like this to some of those verses we read. Uh, To you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High because He is grateful and uh, kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now you compare that to what it says in Deuteronomy 7, you must destroy them totally and show them no mercy. And so uh, sometimes the teachings of Jesus seem to be like completely opposite to what we see God going on in, in the Old Testament. So this adds to the, the, the challenge. Or we look at examples in the life of Jesus. In Luke 9, it says, The people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? And uh, they actually had precedent for this, because if you've read your Old Testament, you remember the story of Elijah, who has these enemies coming, and he calls down fire, and, and it burns up all his enemies, and it doesn't just happen once, but it happens twice. And so these disciples who read their their Old Testament know that, uh, you know, maybe God sends down fire. So there's enemies here in their minds. And so they say, Jesus, should we call down fire and burn them up? Just like Elijah did? And then Jesus says this. But Jesus turned and he rebukes them. Uh, Some manuscripts say uh, that Jesus says, you don't know what kind of spirit you belong to. Like, this is not the spirit of God. This is, this is like the enemy. Yet in, in the Old Testament, we see Elijah calling down from higher. So again, we see these, these incredible contrasts between some of God's actions in the Old Testament and the life, the teaching, and the ministry, ministry of Jesus. Uh, we can go to Matthew 26. This is when Jesus is being erupted, arrested. It says, the men step forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And Jesus doesn't go, yeah, let's go all Testament on this. I mean, he doesn't say that. He says, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And then Jesus picks up this man's ear and he heals uh, this person. And we just see that this is what we see in Jesus' ministry. He, he's always loving and bringing grace uh, upon people. And, uh, and so it becomes this, this contrast. And so it, it makes it difficult. And then we see Jesus on the cross. His enemies, if you will, place him on the cross. And, and yet Jesus looks out and says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then we look at Jesus' teaching in John 5. It says, The Son of Man, uh, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only uh, can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. So everything in Jesus' ministry was, was the father doing it through Jesus. This, this was the father at work. Loving these people and, and saying, you know, uh, you know uh, pray for your enemies and, and love your enemies and all that kind of stuff is coming from the father. And so again, you can begin to see the problem. And we can go on and on and on, but we're already running out of time. So we need to keep going on. So how do we deal with this? How, how do Christians deal with this issue of some of the stuff we see in the Old Testament and, 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 and the picture we have of Jesus? And there's a number of views, but we're going to look at four views and, uh, and so sort of four main views that Christians would answer to this question. And again, uh, these are this is a ginormous topic, uh, just like all of these issues. And we're trying to take a topic that people to spend their life working on and boiling it down to one uh, tending to be longer message, but uh, in there. Uh, this is a huge topic. In fact, Greg Boyd just came up with a book, a book last year on one view, and it's 1,500 pages. 1,489 pages in two volumes on one one. So you can see this. this, this we're not going to be able to cover everything. We're just going to do a little pinprick in each of these views, hopefully encouraging you to say, hey, I would like to learn more about that. Or I never knew that Christians ever thought that way. That's that's interesting. To spur you on to maybe have some good theological discussions and study. Now, there are some things that that all of these views generally agree on, more or less, but would generally agree on. First of all, all of these would generally agree that the dominant picture of God in the Old Testament is love. It's not some angry God who is telling everybody to kill men, men, women, and children. The dominant picture of God in the Old Testament is love. For instance, Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, the the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. 41 times in the Old Testament, it talks about his love that endures forever. And some of these passages that Jesus teaches comes right from the Old Testament, like Leviticus 19 to love your neighbor as yourself, or for I am the Lord God. And so the dominant picture of a sea of God in the Old Testament is a picture of love. Secondly, uh, all uh, these views would agree that many violent texts are descriptive of what happened, not a reflection of God's heart. In other words, you read lots of stuff in the Bible that's just a story about what happened. It's not necessarily saying God, God saying, I agree with this. For instance, there's this attack on Shechem. In Genesis 34, where two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, uh, they take their swords, and they attack this unsuspecting city, and they kill every single male in the city, because they were recovering from circumcision, which is kind of a weird story, but they kill all the males. This was not directed by God. This was not okay with God. This was completely wrong in God's sight, but the Bible just just describes what happened. Uh, The Bible is filled with people doing sinful things. That doesn't mean that God actually agrees with it. So... Uh, Some of the stories of violence in the Old Testament are just descriptions, not a reflection of God's will or heart. Or we can look at some of the Psalms are this way. Uh, Here we see a Psalm uh, where this psalmist is is just—he's crying out his pain because uh, Babylon came in, destroyed his land, and he's frustrated and angry. And he says, "Daughter Babylon, uh, Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants." And dashes them against the rocks. Pretty ugly scene. Uh, this doesn't mean this is God's heart. This doesn't mean that this is God's will. This is this is a, 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 someone. This is a, a recording of, of someone's prayer. Uh, and sometimes we pray things that are not in, in line with God's will. Sometimes we are angry with somebody and we say things that are mean and revengeful and, and hate and, and are full of hate. Uh, just because that we say those things doesn't mean it, it's God's will. And so a lot of the psalms are just filled with with prayers coming from the human heart, and, and the Psalms kind of help us and teach us how to pray, and to, that we can give our emotions to God. Uh, God's definitely not going to do this, but he's giving his emotions to God. So these are descriptive texts, not a reflection of what is going on in God's heart. And the third thing that, that all these views agree on, more or less, and this would be in the more or less category, that the Old Testament contains a hyperbolic ancient Near Eastern warfare rhetoric. And so, uh, specifically around this, 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 this phrase here, Deuteronomy 7, where it says, attack them, you must utterly annihilate them. Make no treaty with them and show, uh, and show them no mercy. Which is this, this Hebrew word, uh, uh, kerem, which means to devote to destruction, or some translations have destroy them totally or utterly annihilate. That this word uh, is not a word that is used literally. And, uh, and in fact, the Bible clearly tells us that this word was never used literally. Uh, for instance, in 1 Samuel, it says Saul, it says, I went on the mission to, uh, the Lord assigned them, I completely destroyed the Amalekites. But then just a few chapters later, it says this, now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and the Ziglag. So he says, I completely destroyed them all, yet there's this huge army who's taking over this huge, vast period uh, of territory. Uh, that often, this, the way the Bible uses this language, it is simply ancient Near Eastern war rhetoric. Uh, we see this throughout the scripture. Again, uh, we can look in Joshua 10. It says, Josh, Joshua conquered the whole region, leaving no survivors, just as the Lord, the God, Israel, had commanded. Yet, you go on and you see that there's survivors all over the place. Uh, And so this was not used literally. In fact, there's a lot of other ancient texts outside of the Bible that use this language in the exact same way. Moab, for instance, they found texts where it describes Moab attacking Israel, saying, we utterly destroyed them. (laughs) Yet they're still there. Uh, They would put this in the category of language we use. Say you had a hockey game. And uh, we'd say, man, our team totally annihilated the other team. We destroyed them. (laughs) I mean, we use it in in a hyperbolic way. And so the Bible would use this in uh, some of a hyperbolic way. In fact, not only does the Bible support that view, but archaeology also tells us that this was not used in a a rigid, literal sense. Uh, Scholar Peter Enns said, biblical uh, biblical archaeologists are about as certain as you can be about these things that the conquest of Canaan, as the Bible describes, did not happen. At least, did not happen in that literal, I destroyed them all sense. No mass invasion from the outside by an Israelite army, and no extermination of the Canaanites as God commanded. Because uh, in the day when the Old Testament was written, it, this kind of language was just used in a hyperbolic way. It was exaggerated language, and that's just the way they did it, and the way it was written down. And so the Bible suggests that, archaeology suggests that, and some of the other old texts we find, uh, like the, Mo- the text from Moab, support this view. And so. They would all say that this is uh, hyperbolic language, but this doesn't change the fact there was violence, and there's still violence seemingly coming from God, and and there's some uh, horrible stuff in the Old Testament. So how do we line this up with Jesus? Uh, How do we answer this question? And again, we're going to look at these four views, and uh, I'm going to have to talk fast like I did last week, so hold on. We're going to get through these four views. (laughs) All right, first one is the synthesis view. And this is kind of the traditional answer that maybe some of you have heard. And that is, there is a continuity between Jesus and the Old Testament violent texts. Uh, They would say that there is a severity about God in both the Old and New Testaments. So they point to verses like Romans 11, behold the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to, to you, God's kindness. Or, or Romans 12, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Uh, or Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. And it seems that the New Testament is saying that, that somehow even God was involved, and maybe it was a good thing that they overthrew these kingdoms. Or Revelation, we see Jesus, and they say, uh, Jesus isn't always just this But sometimes Jesus can even fit into this category of being severe, if you will. And they will point to a verse like this. And this is in red, if you like to find the words of Jesus. Uh, He says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. And so they would say... Uh, that Jesus is even saying these things, and so there is the severity about God, this view would say. They would point to a text like Revelation 19, where it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. And so that's Jesus. With justice, he judges and wages war. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth as a, a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And they would, So they would say that, that, that there's this continuity. And sometimes there are these pictures of Jesus uh, being severe, if you will. Now some of the other views would point out that Revelation is, is uh, apocryphal language, which is highly, highly figurative. And they would say that 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 he's dripped in blood before he goes into the battle. And so this isn't the blood of his enemies. This is his own blood from the cross as he's going into... And and the sword isn't a sword he's carrying in his hand. The sword is coming out of his mouth, which is the word of God. And so they would argue that these aren't violent texts, but these are texts, again, of a a loving loving Jesus. Uh, This view would say that the severity comes from God's righteous justice. They would say his wrath in these violent texts of the Old Testament come actually out of God's love. They would first point to Ezekiel 33, where God says, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. And so again, this, this would highlight the the lovingness of God in the Old Testament, how God uh, took no pleasure in defeating these people or asking Israelites to defeat them. They would say the reason God did this is because you see, there is a point where people have gone so far that out of love, God has to, 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 if you will, carry out wrath against them. And so they would point out that the Canaanites uh, were involved in ritual prostitution, bestiality, human and child sacrifice, that they were sacrificing their kids to idols. We see this in Leviticus 20. talks about offering children as a sacrifice to Moloch. 2 Kings 17, they, they would burn their own children as a sacrifice to their gods. and say, They would say these nations were so corrupt and their corruptness was spreading that God uh, was patient with them. Because it says in Genesis that God actually gave them 400 years to change. Uh, this is why the Israelites had to go to Egypt for 400 years. Because it says here, for the sins of the Amorites or the Canaanites did not yet warrant their destruction. So God was hoping that they would change and, and waiting, but they were sacrificing their kids, and so finally God steps in with his wrath and, and deals with them. So that's what this view would say. Supporting this view would be Dr. Miroslav Wolf. He is a, a theologian, a scholar, who was actually part of uh, the war-torn Yugoslavia, and he said this. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of war in the former Yugoslavia. (laughs) The region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed, and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. I, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Uh, or, or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people, people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? by refusing to condemn the bloodbath but insist instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And... Uh, And so, if um, you want more information on this view, uh, you can turn to uh, Dr. Copan. uh, Copan. Uh, There's lots of books from this view, but uh, Did God Really Command Genocide or Is God a Moral Monster? would be a couple great books uh, defending this view of Old Testament violence. Now, let's go to the complete opposite extreme and look at another view called the Ancient Israelite Perspective View. And this view would say that God did not command the Israelites to act violently. The Israelites simply had a wrong perspective of God. And so they would kind of narrow it down like this. They would say, there's only three options we have. When we look at this violence and we compare it to Jesus, who is the perfect revelation of God, there's only kind of three options, they would say. One is we can question whether God is good. But they would say, we can't do that because we know God is good and God is love. Secondly, we can question whether God changes. Maybe God was really grumpy in the Old Testament and then he became nice. Uh, but we can't do that because the Bible says God never changes. The third option is we can question our understanding of Scripture. And this is where this view, view comes from. That they would say our understanding of Scripture is maybe a little off uh, in, in this area. And so this view would still agree that Scripture is God-breathed and inspired, but they would see it in a little different way. And so Brian Zahn is one who would come from this view, and he, he would say it this way. The Old Testament is the inspired telling of the story of Israel coming to know their God. But it's a process. God doesn't mutate, but Israel's revelation and understanding of God obviously does. Along the way assumptions are made, one of these assumptions was that Yahweh shares certain violent attributes with the pagan deities of the ancient Near East. In other words, like everybody in that day saw their God as a warrior, angry, war-mongering God. That's just like everybody thought that day, and so they would say that that's how they saw Israel saw Yahweh in that that way. These assumptions were inevitable, but were wrong. Between the allegedly divine endorsement of genocide in the conquest of Canaan and the Sermon on the Mount, something changes. What changes isn't God, but the degree to which humanity has obtained a revelation of the true nature of God. The Old Testament is telling the story of Israel, coming to know God, but don't stop, keep going until you get to Jesus, or Dr. Peter Adams, who also holds this view. The ancient Israelites were an ancient tribal people. They saw the world and their God in tribal ways. They told stories of their tribal past, led into battle by a tribal warrior God who valued the same things they did, like killing enemies and taking their land. This is how they connected with God, in their time, in their way. The Bible looks the way it does because God lets his children tell the story. What makes the Bible God's Word isn't an uncanny historical accuracy, as some insist, but the sacred experiences these stories point to, beyond the words themselves. Watching these ancient pilgrims work through their faith, even wrestling with how uh, they did that, models to us our own journeys of seeking to know God better and commune with Him more deeply. If we miss that, we expect the Bible to to be God's objective spark notes on the past. The stories in the Bible will forever be a source of needless frustration. And so they would say that these Old Testament stories are coming from their own experience. That it's inspired in terms of the sense that these, these were how the people actually saw God and were working with God. And God was working with them, bringing them out of their, their wrong view of God to a correct view of God, which is found, found in Jesus. And so that's the ancient Israelite perspective view. And if you want more on that view, you can... Uh, Dr. Peter Enns, uh, The Bible Tells Me So, or you can look at Brian Zand, and there's other books, of course, in this category as well. Another one is the Cosmic Conflict View. And they would say that many of the violent passages in the Old Testament are about eliminating the bloodlines of the Nephilim. That behind all these battle stories is actually this supernatural battle that is taking place and being acted out in, in, in physical battles. So we can look to Ephesians 6, which says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So our battle is not primarily against flesh and blood. It's not primarily physical. But behind everything, there's these spiritual battles going on. And these violent Old Testament texts are a reflection of the spiritual battle taking place in terms of God wanting to eliminate the bloodlines of the Nephilim. now you might say, well, what in the world is a Nephilim? Well, uh, we need to go to Genesis 6. Because it's the first place we hear about the Nephilim in the Bible. In in Genesis 6, it says, In those days, and for some time after, in other words, before the flood, and also after the flood, uh, there were these Nephilim, the Nephilites. So in those days, and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God, that, that is these, 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 these supernatural spiritual beings, had intercourse with women, so these supernatural spiritual beings came down and had uh, sex with, with uh, human women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient time. In other words, uh, the Nephilim. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. And so this is where, of course, God brings the flood. And they say the flood was partly a result of this, this, these uh, supernatural spiritual beings who were rebelling against God, having sex with, with, with human women. They create these Nephilim and they corrupt the, the nations. And there's all these kind of uh, negative spiritual bloodlines. Uh, and so this is the basis. But what we find is that these Nephilim show up in the conquest passages. That when they're destroying these cities there is a lot of talk about these clans of giants that uh, existed. For instance, you remember when the, the Israelites went to spy out the land, the land of Canaan. And the report comes back to Moses. It says, we entered the land you sent us to explore, but the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. And uh, we know the, the Anak or the Anakim, they come from the Nephilim. As it says later on, it says, the land we explored devours those living in it, and all the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. And so, uh, sometimes we wonder why these Israelites were so afraid. This view said they were so afraid because the Nephilim, the descendants of the Nephilim and the bloodline of the Nephilim were in, in the land, and, uh, and they were giants. We're not talking like monstrous giants, but They would be like six foot six, somewhere in there, because the average Israelite in those days was actually about five feet, very short. Uh, So these people were like six foot, which is kind of normal size for us, but uh, they were the giants of the day. And so what we see is all these conquest uh, passages of Israel being commanded to go wipe out these towns can be directly correlated, this view says, with these giant clans. And so all the Conquest passages, we see lots of talk about giants in the the Rephaites, and the Anakites, and the Nephilim. Versus Deuteronomy 2, a race of giants called the Emites once lived in the area of Arar. That's where the pirates lived. They were as strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. Another race of giants. Both the Emites and Anakites are also known as the Rephaites. And you can just do a study on this, and, and we see uh, these correlations between the giant clans and the destruction of these areas in, in, in Canaan. Uh, Dr. Michael Heiser says this, The picture that emerges from the biblical text and archaeology is that the vestiges of the Nephilim bloodline were scattered throughout Canaan among a number, uh, among a number of other people groups. The aim of the conquest was to drive out all the inhabitants and eliminate these bloodlines in the process. The thinking is foreign to us, but it was part of the supernatural worldview of the biblical writers. So again, when it comes to this word of total destruction, totally annihilate them, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser would say, in the con- uh, Karem, in the conquest accounts, is used only of assaults in cities or locales that overlap with giant clan population clusters. Its meaning is that whenever they are found, the bloodline of the giant clans, descendants of the Nephilim, they are to be eradicated. Once the conquest of Canaan actually begins, this is indeed how the term is used. And we could go to the end of the conquest when all this horrible war stuff ended. It says this. During this period, Joshua destroyed all the descendants of Anak. In other words, all these uh, bloodlines were destroyed in, in the land. He killed them all and completely destroyed their towns none of the descendants of amak were left in all the land of israel though some still remain in gaza gath and ashdod which are all philistine cities uh, and that's why they still had constant battle with Philistine. And of course you know goliath guess where he comes from gath uh, he'd be one of these giants that came from the bloodline of the nephilim so they would say that all these battles and such come from uh, this cosmic conflict blue, uh, view in terms of God getting rid of these, these, these tainted bloodlines that were a mix of supernatural beings and humans. And if you want more information on this view, you can pick up this uh, book called The Unseen Realm, and I know some of you have read it here. A lot of great, great stuff in the book, but this would be one of his views in terms of Old Testament violence. The Another view is the accommodation view, or sometimes called the incarnational flexibility View, And they would say this, God is always wanting to move people from non-kingdom living to kingdom living. To do this, God sometimes enters into a culture and accommodates things that are not fully his will in order to bring people to a higher kingdom living. And so uh, they would use, uh, just kind of to help us understand this, we might look at a little, a little baby. Uh, when we have a little baby, sometimes we're like, ah, ga gaga, you know, make a weird noise. And the baby says all these little, little word nears, nears, uh, words back to us. Um, we enter into the world of that little baby. Now, we don't want that baby to stay there, saying gag goo we are hoping that one day that baby's going to grow up to an adult and be able to have a real conversation. But in order to accommodate that baby's world, we, we enter into their world and we begin to act almost like a baby, to make connection with them. So they would say, God moved into the culture, into the realm of, of these people whom... Everyone that day saw their gods as a warrior god. Uh, their gods were the gods that helped them make war and destroy their nations. That was just just common thinking for them. Uh, just like today, we might say that common thinking thinking for us, when we see God, we often see God all about, he's there to make me secure and safe and, 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 and just all gooey, gooey, gooey. That's just way in our culture. We see God that way. They in their culture saw God always the other way. Like He's this violent warrior god. So God actually entered into their culture and if he went, began to talk baby talk. Uh, began to act almost like them, in order to take them to a higher level. Uh, Greg Boyd, who is one who holds this view, would tell this story, which I think is helpful. It tells a story of a, 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 some social workers who would bring in uh, children who had been uh, physically abused in, in horrible ways, and they brought in one child whom uh, was abused ever since the age of four by her father. And a very sad story, but every night she would uh, take her feces and she would smear it all over her wall in her room and and over the the, the floor and the bed. She would smear it all over and day in, day out, she would would do this. Now, they knew they couldn't like, you know, yell at her or, you know, tell her to change because she was so wounded. And and so uh, they just kind of let it happen for a while. Then eventually they built up enough trust where this, this young girl began to tell her story and how, how her father would come in every night and, and abuse her. And then one night she, uh, she 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 pooped herself. And this was so repulsing to the father that, that he left. And so every night she began to do this, take her feces and smear it on the walls and on the beds because to this, for her, it meant safety. To this was security. To this mean I was not gonna get get abused. And so when these social workers found this out, they said, okay, um, let, let's work with this. Uh, how about you just kind of limit smearing your feces to this one area, in fact, because just to show that we love you, we're actually gonna help you. And so the social workers entered into this kind of poopy messy world and began to put on their gloves and help her smear it on before she would um, go to bed just so she would feel safe and be able to sleep. And eventually, the, this uh, woman grew out of it because she began to see that she was loved and she didn't have to do this anymore. But uh, Greg Boyd would say, imagine if someone walked in on that scene where the social workers were smearing the this, this feces on the wall along with this child—that you would think the social work workers had—they just, you know, gone off the deep end. Or they should be fired. Like, how in the world could social workers do that? But if you know the story, if you see their motive, you see what what they're trying to take this woman from this to this. You understand why they entered into that culture and did things that they didn't even want to do, and they would say, "God is doing just this." That God enters into the world of this violent world, and the only way he can gain respect, if you will, to to hook onto the nation, to bring them to the nation uh, forward, to the realm where where Jesus is, he had to enter and sometimes act as a violent God. And come across as as a God and and enter into their mess, into their, their, their poopiness, if you will. And they will point to a lot of ways which God is an accommodating God. In other words, there are lots of times in the Old Testament. God blesses things that actually aren't his will or his way. So we can look at the temple, for instance. Uh, God never wanted a temple. It's clear, I I don't want a temple. But the people are saying, we want a temple, because in those days, God's lived in temples. So they're thinking, we need to have a temple. God said, I don't want a temple. the, The people said, I don't want a temple. God says, no. They say, we want a temple. And so finally, actually, God says, yes. And he blesses the temple, and he uses the temple. And it almost seems like the temple is God's idea. But it was him accommodating the culture. We could look at that in the way uh, for the king. You remember when uh, they wanted a human king? God says, no, I'm to be your king. The people say, no, we want an earthly king. God says, no, well, we want an earthly king. So God says, okay, let's work with this. Even though it wasn't his will, God begins to use the king and pick the kings and bless the kings and work with the kings. Even though it was not his plan, he accommodates the culture to bring them forward. There are very good arguments that the whole sacrificial system, you know, slicing animals and making them bleed everywhere, that that was God accommodating the culture. It wasn't his idea, but animal sacrifice was was all over the culture in those days, even before, uh, before the scriptures were written, that God accommodated this and said, okay, we'll start with here. And we're going to get involved in your poopiness, and then we're going to move you to a place where you don't do that anymore, in in Jesus. The whole Old Testament law, in many respects, is is like this. Uh, The Old Testament law doesn't reflect God's perfect will and heart, but God puts it in place to bring the culture forward. And this is what uh, it says in Galatians. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. In other words, the law was just there to take this ancient people group who were super messy, to help them out a little bit better, to make some steps forward. But now that we have Jesus... The Old Testament law is no longer necessary as it was before. The Bible talks about the Old Testament law being just a shadow of what it is now. In fact, Jesus comes along, and we know that the Old Testament and many of stuff, and it was not God's idea will, because Jesus comes along, and he changes it. In Matthew 5, it says, You have heard that it was said uh, to the people long ago, in other words, from the Old Testament, You shall not murder. But then Jesus says, But I tell you, it is time to grow up it is time to raise the bar it is time to come out of that gaggy goo-goo talk and it's time to live as a full child of god and now let's enter into the full picture of who god is but i tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment or matthew 5 you have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery again from the old testament but i tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustily has already committed adultery within her heart so We see Jesus constantly raising the bar uh, of the Old Testament law to a new level of love and a new level of hope and grace and a new picture of God. So this whole view would say that the Old Testament and these wars were God starting with where these people are at and moving them forward. Uh, Another example would be uh, there's a missionary couple that went to, I think it was in Africa, into this tribe that had totally been separated from modern uh, mankind. And this missionary couple went into this tribe uh, to bring in the good news of Jesus. And they realized that there were some really horrible activities taking place. For instance, uh, they had this celebration of a female circumcision, which they would do. And it was such a part of their culture. And they'd have these grand festivals where they would celebrate these, these, th- th- what was going on. And they come in, and, and of course they're repulsed. And it's like, this, this is, just, this is wrong, and this is horrible. But they knew... That they couldn't just come out and say, you guys are all wrong, and you know, this whole celebration you're doing is a whole, they would just be, they would be kicked out. They knew, as we know, that you need to earn the right to be heard. And so they spent time with this tribe, and they actually had to go to some of these ceremonies and and celebrate with them, because that's just what the culture did. And eventually they gained enough respect where they were able to bring the gospel in and eliminate female circumcision. And again, this is what God is doing. He's entering into this, this culture where everybody sees God as a God of war. And, and so he enters into that, and it almost seems like he's blessing it and celebrating it, even though it grieves his heart. Because he said, I want to take you from here, and I want to move you to the new realm realm of, of Jesus. And so, again, we just see Jesus uh, saying different things in the, in the law. So if you want to know more about this view, you can look at uh, Dr. Greg Boyd's, uh, he's got a couple books. The easy one to read is cross-vision, how the crucifixion of Jesus makes sense of the Old Testament violence. He would also bridge to a couple other views, but mostly would sit on the, uh, the accommodation view. Now, if it it's all confusing for you, uh, this is where we just need to fix our eyes on Jesus. I mean, the Bible's not easy. There's some difficult stuff in here. But there is one thing we can be clear on, and we can be clear on Jesus. Sometimes we read stuff that is very blurry. Uh, But the Bible tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And so if we ever struggle with the character of God, we just got to look to Jesus. Because Jesus and the Father are one. They're not not separate. Uh, And we just look at the life life of Jesus. In fact, the very definition of God, if you ever begin to doubt his character, is found in the crucified Christ. I mean, the Bible says that God is love. And I know I say this a lot. He's not 80% love or 90% love. He's 100%. His very essence is love. God cannot act unloving. And how is love defined? Or how is God defined? This is how we know what love is. In other words, this is how we know what God is. Because God is love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The Bible says while we were still enemies, even though we didn't love God, Jesus died for us. Took upon us all of our sin and mistakes and our messiness and our poopiness and all that stuff. He takes it all upon himself and and he gets rid of it so that we might be clean and we might have life and we might have a relationship with him. In Matthew 17, God himself says, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well. Please listen to him. And there is a very strong sense that the words of Jesus... Uh, Trump all... That's not a word anymore. All of the revelation. <laughs> Preeminent over all of our revelation. Heading back to Hebrews, it says, in, these past, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, found in the Old Testament, as many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And other the clearest revelation, the clearest picture of who God is, is found in... In Jesus. And we know who Jesus is. Jesus loves us. He's for us, not against us. Jesus did not come to bring death and destruction. He came to bring his life and life abundantly. Jesus himself said that my testimony is greater than John the Baptist. And yet Jesus also said that John the Baptist was the greatest of all the prophets. In other words, if Jesus, John the Baptist is greater than all the prophets of the Old Testament, and then Jesus is greater than John the Baptist, then that's what we listen to. As God said, listen to him. And so if you ever read through the Old Testament and there's stuff that just seems really blurry, you go to that which you do know. And you know that God is completely loving and amazing and beautiful and good and great. And you look to what you see clearly. Uh, you, you wrestle with that fuzzy stuff, but you look to Jesus. And so Father, we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. God, as we wrestle with some of these difficult questions and, and we tire out our minds <laughs> as I talk so fast, Uh, that, God, you would just keep our eyes fixed fixed on your son, Jesus. God, we thank you that you're a relational God. I thank you that you want to know us so intimately and so deeply. We thank you, God, that we are safe. Uh, We are safe to come to you, and we're safe to crawl into your lap. God, we thank you for those beautiful pictures you gave us of, of how you come running towards the prodigal son, the rebellious son, and how you run towards us with open arms, even though, God, sometimes we are rebelling and turning away from you. So, God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you, God, that you are incredible. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.